Last week we started looking at verse uh, chapter 24 and 26. They kind of mirror each other. And um, if you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay because we're going to be jumping around a little bit anyway. And we're going to have all the words, all the verses and references up on the screen as well. So this is part two of a uh, series on dealing with an abusive leader. Dealing with an abusive leader. And before we do anything else, let's pray and just ask God's blessing and his spirit to minister in this time together. Father, we thank you so much for uh, your being our father. Lord, we thank you that Jesus didn't come in kind of like holy rebellion against you and said, no, I want to love these people, Father. But you sent Jesus because you love us so much. He wasn't, he wasn't the good God and you're the mean God, but you are the loving Father. And we just thank you so much. Lord, as we look at um, this very difficult subject, I pray that, Father, your spirit will bring what we need to hear, Lord. If, if there's anyone here or watching online who has been or is being currently um, exploited or abused or crushed by an abusive leader, I pray, Father, that you will speak wisdom. I pray that you'll bring healing. I pray, Father, you will heal wounds. I pray that you'll bring perspective and help through this. Father, I pray that if anybody's listening who is abusive, they, maybe they don't even know it or don't mean it, but they are abusive in their leadership or their, in how they relate to people. I pray you bring conviction, holy conviction in change through your spirit and through your word. So, Father, we just commit this time to you, Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to just kind of encourage you. Uh, because I know this is, a, this is a sensitive subject. Some of you, this like, I've never experienced this. Others, you have been under uh, abusive leadership. And I'm going to define a little bit what that means. But you've been under it. And, this, and the wounds still possibly go deep. It may have been years ago, but the wounds still go deep. If you are having a hard time working through that, or you feel like you're stuck in that place, or you don't know what to do with it, Again, one, just reference you to get counseling, see somebody, you know, good biblical Christian counseling. You can go to our website. You can, you can go to counseling at gracecorning.org and set up a counseling appointment with Ken, who's just up here, um, and, um, and just receive wisdom and, and biblical love and care through his ministry of counseling. So I just want to say that because this is, this is um, a, a, such a sensitive subject. So first thing I want to do is kind of repeat the caution I gave last week. We don't want to throw the label abuse on something that isn't abusive. All right. We are all sinners, right? We're all sinners. We all mess up. We're all, we all do things that bang against each other. We're banging, you know, and we disappoint, we discourage, we say words that are unkind. We hurt each other. Um, We do all that, and so we don't want to just label, well, that person hurt my feelings, they're abusive, you know, or that person stood in the way of my happiness, they're abusive. No, no, no. Um, We don't want to label, you know, the fact is that God actually uses relational challenges, even serious challenges, to, in our relationships, to help us to grow in love, to learn what it is to love one another through hard times, to learn patience, to learn forgiveness. And so God uses those things as sanctifying opportunities. And and again, we should seek help if we're in a hard relationship and challenging relationship. Those things are not right. If somebody has hurt you with their words, it's not right. There should be forgiveness asked and given 
and, and maybe you need counseling, but my caution is just this. Don't just label every challenging relationship of that person as abusive. An abusive leader or an abusive person, and I'm using the word leader because Saul is our model in this, and he is an abusive leader. But listen, an abusive person of any kind is someone who harms, who exploits, who intimidates, who crushes or controls others for their own agenda. And abuse comes in different forms, and every form is serious. Physical abuse, we know, we know what that looks like. Mental abuse and spiritual abuse. Spiritual abuse is perhaps the most insidious because it uses the name of God to control people, to crush them, to put into bondage those for whom Jesus Christ died in order to liberate and so you have abusive churches, you have abusive leaders. I just, at our men's breakfast yesterday, Paul shared a story that's going on in Kenya about a, uh, uh, I don't even want to call him a spiritual leader, but he's, he's a man who has led hundreds of people into mandated fasting and hundreds of them have died, especially women and children. And they're just digging up their, their grave sites now. And this guy is eating and healthy, and he says he's going to be the last one so he can close the door. Isn't that how it is? The abusive leader takes care of himself, but he steps on other people and harms them. And, and that is truly demonic. That is demonic. Okay, so spiritual abuse is um, using God or spiritual things to control people, to crush them and intimidate them. Saul had all the characteristics of an abusive leader. He was paranoid, given to outbursts of rage. He was jealous of anyone who shined brighter than him. He, he had unpredictable mood swings. He was willing to hurt or even kill in order to achieve his agenda. And so David's response, which we see particularly in chapters 24 and 26, give us some wise, wise steps in how we deal with an abusive leader. And I've got six steps here, and they're going to go through them pretty quickly, but the first step is this. Don't throw spears back at them. Don't throw spears back at them. Here's what's going on in chapter 24 and 26. Twice, David is running for his life. Saul is out to kill him. Twice, David has the opportunity to kill Saul with the same spear that Saul hurled at David more than once. He has the opportunity to kill him because, and, and David refused to do that because David refused to become another Saul. Abusive people hurl spears at us. It, it, it could be fists, but very often it's spears of anger, hypercriticism, guilt, blame shifting. It's all your fault. Gaslighting. You're overreacting. This isn't real. And they, they throw these spears at us in order to get their way. And we may be tempted to pick that spear up and hurl it back at them. We want to hurt them for hurting us. We want to spread gossip about them as far and wide as we can. We want to slander and hurt their reputation. And God may give us that opportunity. Just like he gave David the opportunity to kill Saul with the same spear twice. And here's the thing. David's men, they see Saul there, in one case, going to the bathroom in a cave, doesn't know that they're back further in the cave. The second case, he's sound asleep, 
spear right next to his head. Both times, the men, David's men said, praise God. This is God giving you the opportunity to take that spear and run it right through him. Kill your enemy and be king. But David interpreted as God-given opportunity, God-given opportunities to show kindness to Saul. David was determined not to become another Saul. Now, here's, here's, here's why. The reason we don't throw spears back at the abusers because it's not so much about them. It's about us. God doesn't want our being abused to soak into us in such a way that it turns us into abusers. He has a better way. So don't throw your spear, their spears back at them, but rather, second point, do treat them with love. Now, hang on if you think, man, is this just going to be love and forgive and let them keep it? No, okay? But, I, but I've got to say this, do treat them with love. I'm not saying be passive, let the abuser do whatever. Too many churches, too many Christians do just that, and it's not good. So I'm going to get to steps to take to protect ourselves and others <clears throat> from ongoing abuse in a moment. Loving them doesn't mean enabling them to continue their abusive actions, but God calls us to treat even abusers with love. David loves Saul. David loves Saul. When Saul and Jonathan die in battle and David hears about it, David doesn't sing, Jonathan, you're so wonderful, and Saul, I'm so glad you're dead. I hope it was painful. He doesn't sing that. He sings a lament to both Saul and his best friend, Jonathan, who was Saul's son. <clears throat> and, he, and he remembers the good qualities of Saul, and he, he overlooks none of, and he's, he remembers none of the bad qualities. And here, I just want to read a couple verses from the song that David sang. Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and admired, and in death they were not parted. <clears throat> They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. How the mighty have fallen in battle. That's his song for Saul, who was trying to kill him. And Jesus said, we are to love and pray for our enemies. And for that, we need the love of God poured out in our hearts. But it protects us from becoming angry, bitter, hate-filled vessels. You see, if our hearts are filled with hate, we can't expect love to come out. On the cross, Jesus prayed for the very ones who crucified him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That prayer really doesn't say much about the people who crucified him. It's, it gives us a window into the heart of Jesus. His heart was not filled with hatred. His heart was not filled with anger or bitterness. It overflowed with love and forgiveness. Now, those people who crucified him, they paid the price and will pay the price. But Jesus didn't allow hatred to seep into his soul. He loved. Love and forgiveness was in the heart of Christ. And he wants to shine that love through us. All right, third point. So we don't hurl the spears back at them. We do treat them with love. We do put space between you and the abusive leader. Do put space between you and the abusive 
leader. When David found out John, uh, Saul was out to kill him, chapter 19, verse 18 says, when David had fled and made his escape, verse 20, verse 1, chapter 20, verse 1 says, then David fled from Naoth at Ramah. And then chapter 21, verse 10 says, that day David fled from Saul. Do you, do you get the picture? 19, 20, 21, David is fleeing, fleeing, fleeing. He's running. He's escaping. He's not standing there allowing Saul to kill him or do whatever he wants to do him. He ran, he fled, he escaped. Once he realized Saul was an abusive leader, he put, pay, he put space between them. Now, I wrestled whether to put this point before point number four, which is to speak truth. So in some situations, you might be in a situation where you speak truth first. And if it doesn't go well, then you put space. But if it's an unsafe relationship or environment, I think David's example is a wise one to follow. He puts safe space between him and the abuser before he attempted to speak truth to Saul. Putting a safe space between you and an abusive leader or person might mean avoiding them. It might mean taking a second person with you as you meet with them as a witness and a moral support when you meet with them. Putting safe space between you might mean leaving an abusive church, leaving an abusive organization, or leaving a relationship that's abusive. Um, God can give you wisdom. I've, I have so many stories and thoughts. I was just talking to Cindy about a ministry that I used to uh, be a, uh, attended their conferences back in the 80s and 70s. And, uh, and she did as well. And, and it came out later. It was very legalistic and it was very abusive. Put distance. Put distance. God can give you wisdom. Because every situation is different. There may be circumstances where you can't get safe. In 1 Peter chapter 2, what we looked at at community group, Peter addresses servants who have cruel masters and they can't get free. And he calls them to a transcendent path of following Christ's example and suffering for doing good. And here's what Jesus did. And here's what he calls us to entrusting our souls to the one who is faithful. Entrusting our souls to the one who is faithful. There is great gospel beauty in that. So even if you're in a situation you can't get out, you have no, there's no escape door. There's gospel beauty in entrusting your soul to God the Father who is faithful, even as Jesus did. And imitate his beautiful example. And God will help you. He will be there for you. But if you can get out, get out. If you can get safe, get safe. Fourth point, do speak the truth respectfully but firmly. So here's the situation in chapter 24. Saul's in the cave relieving himself. David could have killed him. And afterward, David confronted him with the truth. Verse 8, chapter 24, verse 8. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul. 
Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Verse 10, Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you, that you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between you and me. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients say, out of wicked, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. David is speaking truth to Saul's heart. He confronts the lies that Saul is listening to and spreading. He confronts those lies with objective truth. He calls upon God to be the witness between the two of them, and he confronts Saul with the evil he is doing with him when he says, out of wickedness comes wickedness. Evil does not give birth to goodness. Evil gives birth to a little healthy evil. That's what it gives birth to. And, and what he's saying is, you are doing evil by running after to kill me who has done you no harm. But I am not going to return that evil because out of evil, out of wickedness comes wickedness. And I'm not going to go there. He confronts and contrasts. The, the wickedness of Saul's actions with the goodness of his own and the mercy of his own. So David isn't hurling spears of anger and gossip and bitterness or murder. But you know what he is hurling? He's hurling truth right at Saul's heart, hoping it will pierce Saul's heart and lead him to repent. Now, in the next point, we'll look at Saul's response. But in chapter 26, it all happens again. David once again speaks truth respectfully but firmly to Saul. In chapter 26, verse 17, same thing happens. Saul recognized he could have been killed. He could have woke up dead. And he recognized, in verse 17, Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. Hear the respect. And David said, why does my Lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now, therefore, let my Lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, go, serve other gods. Apparently, the lies that are swirling around in Saul's head are also being reinforced by other men around him, opportunists. And David says, may they be cursed before the Lord. What I want to underline here, what I want to emphasize here is David is not minimizing the evil of Saul's abuse or of those who encourage his abuse. In chapter 24, David says, may the Lord avenge me against you. And in chapter 26, he said, those enabling this evil, may they be cursed before the Lord. All those involved need to pay, David says. So he appeals to the only authority higher in his, in his world, higher than the king, and that is to God. May God avenge me against you. May God accurse those 
who are doing this. The last thing David is saying is, doesn't matter. It's all cool. It's all good. Just let it go by. He's calling for accountability, but he's calling God to bring that accountability. So let me, let me just pause. I almost forgot to say this, and I thought of it this morning. Most of the abuse we're talking about is going to be just kind of not illegal but horrible. But there are abuses that are illegal. When abuse breaks the law, when a child is abused, when there's sexual abuse, or anything that's illegal, speaking the truth must, must include reporting it to the proper authorities. It must. Churches have tried to deal with some things like child abuse in-house, and you're not, it's, 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 it's wrong, it's the wrong thing to do. It's, it's, it, it ends very badly. You got to go to the, if something's illegal, if something's harming people in a way that endangers their life, you go to the authorities. You go to the authorities, the proper authorities. You report it. And that's not hurling spears. That's simply what's doing, doing what's right, what's true, to stop that abuse from continuing and to bring accountability to the abuser. So most of the account of abuse we're talking about doesn't rise to illegal, though it does rise to the horrible. But when it does, appeal, as David does, to the proper authorities to deal with it and stop it. Now, in the case of abuse, that's just horrible. The person that's abusing you, kind of crushing you, kind of, or others. If you have the opportunity to speak truth, do it firmly, courageously, and clearly. Sometimes you're not going to have that access. You're not going to have access to speak. Maybe, maybe you're in a large church and you're not in leadership and you see things that concern you. You don't have relational ties. You have no access point to be heard. And, and, and point number three, to just put safe space between you might be the end of the road for you. Just put safe space between you. But when we have a bridge of access, what point number four might be the step God is calling us to, to speak to them. And what I've seen in some cases um, is that abusive leaders will exploit the good intentions of their congregation or their organization by urging them not to participate in gossip or criticism. And they might quote David's words, touch not the anointed. Don't criticize. That person's anointed. We have a multi-million dollar ministry reaching the world. Don't criticize them. You'll hurt the gospel. You'll hurt the reputation of the church. Actually, you're hurting the gospel and the reputation of the church if you don't speak out. When people don't do, when they hide it and they cover it and they just kind of, okay, let's just pass over it. Because look at all the good that God is doing. No, no. God doesn't deal in shadows and darkness. He deals in light. And if somebody's doing wrong, speak to them. I mean, again, there's so many circumstances. If you can go to them privately or go to them with a witness, but don't cover up and don't buy the idea that, that bringing truth with hum humility but accountability is somehow hurting Because silence in that case enables the abuse to continue. Truth needs to be spoken with clarity, with courage, with love and respect as well. 
Abuse flourishes in darkness. It flourishes in silence. I've heard of churches and I've, I've, I've seen situations where churches rally behind the abusive leader and then, and then marginalize the victim. I've seen where the, the one who abused gets applauded and the one who said they were abused gets marginalized and were even shunned. And that's wrong. That's totally, totally missed. God wants us to protect victims. Amen? Amen? God wants us to stand up for the, for the voiceless, to protect the defenseless. That's why true religion, James says, is to, to care for the orphan and the widow. He doesn't say it's to care for the multi-million dollar uh, this person and that person. It's the care for the person who doesn't have the ability to protect themselves. And that should be how the church responds. You're the victim. Someone else is the perpetrator. We're going to love the perp, but we're going to go and hold them accountable. Love in that case is going to be strong. It's not going to be, let's just cover this up and let's just forget about it. It's going to be strong. So if you are in a place where you can speak truth, The other thing is abusers are often masters at gaslighting. So they make you question your perspective, your, of, your perception of reality. Is this even real? David speaks objective truth to Saul. You are listening to lies. You are doing evil. And I'm not going to do evil back. May God avenge you. Avenge me. Avenge you for me and what you're doing to me. So he speaks objective truth. Fifth, don't trust the words until you see it backed up with action. Don't trust the words until you see it backed up with action. Chapter 24, verses 16 through 22. And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He just learned that David could have killed him. He just learned that David could have killed him and didn't kill him. Here's the response of Saul. Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So... May the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you surely shall be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. This is chapter 24. It's all good now, isn't it? It's all great. It's beautiful. Saul weeps. He confesses, I've been doing evil. And you're a better man than I am. And I know you're going to be king. And here's what I ask. Would you be kind to my, my generation, my heritage? Would you treat my children and grandchildren well? And, and David promises. It's all good. Everything's good. It's fixed. This is so great. It's beautiful. I feel like we should all weep a little bit, you know, with them. And enjoy this moment. He's contrite. He sees what he's done. He acknowledges God's will. It's all good. 
And Saul probably meant every single word. But two chapters later, he's still searching for Saul to kill, or David to kill him. It meant nothing. It meant nothing. And David was wise enough not to fall for Saul's emotional confession. He keeps running. He keeps a safe distance. Some people, abusive people, will lash out at anyone who confronts their abusive behavior. They'll lash out at it. They'll accuse you of this and that, and you're just this, and you're evil, and you've always had it out for me, and you're this and that. And it's your fault if I'm angry, because you, and you, and you, and but others do what Chuck DeGrott calls, and I wish I had written it down, vulnerability, F-A-U-X, like fall, like phony, vulnerability. Vulnerability. They act contrite, especially if a group of people bring something to them. They act contrite. They confess some of their sin to look humble and like they're taking responsibility and It takes more than a few words to discern if their contrition is real or vulnerability. We want to believe the best. But when the pattern is deeply embedded, it takes God's transforming work, usually over a period of time, to truly change someone's heart. God can do it. We should pray for it. But look for actions and look for time to back up the words before you totally believe it. Some years ago, I sat in a family's living room as the husband screamed in rage at his wife and children. I mean rage. I could feel the rage. Sometimes he turned it in my direction. It wasn't the first time. It wouldn't be the last. Not long afterwards, she took the kids and she left him. Overnight change. He became so humble, so contrite. He could see the ways he had hurted her, and he vowed it would never happen again. I remember sitting and talking with him for at length. And I truly felt the sorrow. And I remember thinking, he's a changed man. After a month, she went back to him. And not long after that, he was right back where he was, screaming in rage. Back to his old ways. It's not even that they are meaning to be duplicitous. It's that in the heat of the moment, that heat gets their heart to think, I don't want this. I'm wrong. I'm evil. Like him, just weeping, and I'm so sorry. And It's not that he wants change. He just doesn't want the situation that he's in right now. He wants it back. So Saul was captured in the heat of the moment. He could have died. And so oh, I'm weeping and I'm, you're a better man than I am and everything. Long, not long after that, he's like, kill him. Let's kill him. Vulnerability. I'm, I'm just faking vulnerability. If our hearts aren't changed within us, if we aren't actively taking steps to cultivate that change, particularly an abusive person, they will, like Saul, revert back very quickly to the patterns. So we are to believe the best, but when there's highly destructive patterns, we can't just trust words until we see a changed pattern over a long period of time. 
that indicates to us a changed heart. My last point this morning is very simple, but it's, it's so important. Do trust God to right the wrong and avenge the evil. Chapter 24, verse 12 and 15, David says this, May the Lord judge between you and me. May the Lord avenge me against you. My hand shall not be against you. Verse 15, may the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. You know, David had a strong confidence in his God. I said a couple weeks ago, no one can destroy you when you are in God. Nobody. They can hurt you. They can't destroy your life when you're in God because he's got your life. And that's what David knew. David's not walking around a victim. He's not walking around. My life's been shattered. It's been devastated. God promised I'd be king, but I'm devastated. And my life is over because of this. No, he's, he's man, I'm trusting God. God is going to speak between us. He's going to judge between you and me. And he will avenge me against you. But my hand won't. That's why he had the confidence not to thrust that spear through Saul. He said, I'm going to let God do it. And God did it. God did it. Peter calls us when we suffer unjustly to imitate Christ who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus had been there. We're all, we're not perfect like Jesus, but sometimes we may face where we are unjustly accused or treated poorly. And I'm not a passive, like, just take it. These steps don't say just take it. Do what you can. But even as you do what you can, entrust yourself to the one who judges justly. He is Jesus came to save us. Like, God is the opposite of an abusive leader. Jesus came to love us and save us from ourselves. He came to give us good at his own personal harm. Because his love is so rich and true. And the Father, the Father loves us with that same infinite love that he loves his Son with. It's worth being broken up over, Ken, because it's a beautiful thing. And it's what our hearts long for. So maybe you're in a place where you're, you're in an abusive situation or you've come from one. I want you to begin with this. Soak in the love and the, the, the health of the love of God. And know that God will one day set it all right. He'll make it all right. He is just. But thankfully, we have a Savior who saves us and makes us not only righteous in the sight of God, but adopted as children. You're his son. You're his daughter. He will never let you go. Trust in Christ. Trust in the Father.